0: The following program is sponsored by Rosenthal Wealth
2: Management. It's a registered representative offering securities and advisory services through Sotera Advisor Networks, LLC.
1: Making money since live with Larry Rosenthal. Larry is recognized as one of the nation's leading financial and retirement planners and is here to answer your questions right now. Author, speaker, and talk show host Larry Rosenthal. Is dedicated to teaching others financial stewardship. Answer your questions right now. Author, speaker, and talk show host Larry Rosenthal is dedicated to teaching others financial stewardship from a biblical point of view. That's 855-767. Studio lines are open at 855-Rose123. That's (laughs) 855-767-3123. Making Money Sense is on the air. All right, here we go again. Welcome to the
2: Larry Rosenthal Show, and in the studio with us today again is Dina Arnett. Welcome, Dina.
3: Good morning. It's great to see you.
2: Good to see you guys as well. Appreciate you being here. It's awesome. Hey, listen, yeah. if you'd like to dial in, our phone number is 855-767-3123, 855-ROSE-123, to talk to Dina Arnett. And for Larry Rosenthal here today, what are we talking about? Well,
3: do you know that one month from today is the United States tax filing deadline? So we might talk about a little bit of tax stuff. Going to talk about the markets, going to talk about the latest uh, with the Silicon Valley bank issues, um, and we'll take your calls.
2: Yeah, it'll be great to hear from you today as well. And we have some lines available for you up front here. So if you'd like to dial, it's 855-767-3123.
3: It was a wild ride on the markets this week. The Dow ended down slightly, 0.15% for the week. The big the big blue chip index is down 3.88% for the year. The S&P and the NASDAQ both posted positive returns this week. The S&P was up almost 1.5%, brings the broader S&P 500 index up 2% for the year, And the NASDAQ was up 4.5% this week. That brings the tech heavy index up a a little over 11% for the year. So believe it or not, even with all the the volatility, even with the worries uh, precipitated by the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, the S&P and the NASDAQ are still still holding, holding on fairly well. The yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury fell by 30 basis points this week. The price for a barrel of West Texas Intermediate Crude dropped by $10 to $66.50. And, of course, volatility as measured by the VIX was up. So if if you have felt like it was a bit of a wild ride in your portfolio this week, it's because it was. The, the Chicago Board of Options Exchange measures volatility using this index called the VIX, and the higher the VIX number goes, the wilder that market roller coaster ride is. And we saw the VIX higher this past couple of weeks, and that's because of the the banking concerns.
2: <coughs> it sounds me. like you need some VIX there yourself, but different kind I, well, of
3: Well, a, a little drink of water would be nice. <laughs> a different
2: kind of VIX. I love VIX. I tell you, that's the best stuff for a cold, but we're not talking about that kind we're of We're not VIX. talking about that. I just. Yeah choked up a little bit <laughs> that's okay hey why don't we while, you, while you're choking up let's go <coughs> let's go ahead and bring on uh, albert from gainesville with a question for you today good morning albert
4: yeah good morning can you hear me
2: yeah we got you loud and clear go ahead
4: hey albert okay, good yes good morning thank you everybody i was just wondering you know i this required minimum distribution to change the law that uh you start <coughs> you can start withdrawing your required to uh, record minimum an distribution, and uh, when you turn, was it seventy-three now?
3: It is now seventy-three, provided you had not already started taking distributions. Okay. Those those okay, who already started taking distributions yeah. have to stay on the schedule.
4: Okay. Here's the scenario. Say most of my I've done the research is uh, everybody thinks that you're you're no longer working and no longer contributing. Seventy three next year and I want to retire mid year, like June thirtieth. Am I required to take hundred percent of that requirement distribution between July first and the end of the calendar year?
3: Yes, you are. You absolutely oh. are. It doesn't, if you retire in the year that you turn 73, and you have money okay. in pre-tax retirement account, you are absolutely subject to that required minimum distribution. Now, there's, there's. Uh, uh, let, let me backtrack on what I said. You do have to take the full distribution, but technically you have until April 1 of the yeah. following year. Yeah to take the distribution. Here's where the confusion comes into play for a lot of people. Distribution number one technically is calculated based on the year you turn 73. Distribution number two is calculated on the year that you turn 74. If you delay distribution number one until April 1st of the next year, you have to take distribution number one and distribution number two yeah. in the same year, depending on the size of the distribution, that may be enough to affect your tax bracket. So a lot of people don't want to do that for that very reason. But you do have until April 1st of 2025 to take that first distribution.
4: Okay. Well, thank you very much.
3: I hope that clear, cleared that up for you.
4: Yes. Yeah, because I I've done some research, but I can't. Nobody's ever told me this. Yeah, it, so it is a hundred percent any time during that year. Okay. Correct.
3: They're not going to prorate it based on how long you worked that year. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks for the call.
2: Thank you, Albert. Eight five five seven six seven three one two three eight five five Rose one two three. We were talking about the Vix sort of
3: sort of yeah the 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 vix measures volatility in the market and any time we get worrisome headlines uh, like the Silicon Valley Bank failure. You're going to see more market volatility and the VIX is simply an index that is going to help us gauge that volatility. It was up about a point last week versus the week prior. And then last week it was up significantly over the previous week because last week is when we first started really hearing about Silicon Valley Bank. And this week, that is the news that continues to dominate financial headlines. There are other banks that are having similar liquidity issues. Um, the, The FDIC has taken receivership of Silicon Valley Bank. And there are continuing efforts to find a buyer for that bank, but so far no takers. In the U.K., HSBC, uh, that's a a very large U.K. bank, they have acquired the the European shares of Silicon Valley Bank for one pound. And that gives them access to that client list so that they can start working with them. You're going to start hearing another bank name, First Republic. They're also out of San Francisco. They also have a similar clientele as Silicon Valley Bank. They're in similar distress. On Thursday morning, a group of the largest 11 U.S. banks banded together to create a rescue plan for First Republic. And under that plan, these banks are going to deposit a total of $30 billion with First Republic for an initial period of 120 days. That's going to give them time to figure out where to go from here. In light of those liquidity issues, rightly so, First Republic suspended the dividend on their common stock.
2: My goodness. I mean, it, it seems a little bit scary when you look at it from the surface. And these banks, from what I understand, are not your typical bank. I mean, most of the time they lend to venture cap or to new businesses and new things and startups and things of that nature. So I guess that's why it's a little bit risky.
3: It, it, it was a, a risky business model for Silicon Valley Bank. They were at doing exactly what you just said. They were lending to startups. They were lending to newer tech companies, some healthcare biotech startups and they weren't well diversified so when the liquidity issues started popping up what they did is they went and sold a bunch of very long dated us treasuries that they had purchased and because of the way the bond market has been they took a loss on those treasuries so that started this snowball effect within their bank and that ultimately is is what led the fdic to assume receivership of that bank We've now got uh, some large U.S. institutions trying to keep the same thing from happening to First Republic. Unfortunately, the spillover, the, the the fright of it all, has caused a, a ripple effect among many regional banks you're seeing a lot of clients of these smaller regional banks pull their money out and stick it into the great big banks so so the domino effect continues the fed has stepped in the treasury has stepped in the fdic has stepped in and they're all uh, working together with these large banks the large banks are resilient they they are Stepping in to help the smaller banks Um, and the Fed added that they're going to be ready to provide liquidity if needed.
2: You know, it's interesting because you talk about uh, some of these uh, situations are a little bit scary for the entire, you know, the entire people. Everybody is scared of the situation. But the reality is most of the American banks are very well capitalized. And this is a kind of a unique situation.
3: It is a unique situation. After the 2008 recession, the global financial crisis, banking systems around the globe reconfigured the rules. They they restated and, and made more conservative the rules around the risks that banks are allowed to take. So the the overall banking system here in the United States is very strong. It's very resilient. I, I do believe the smaller banks uh, in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. in San Francisco, in that area, that were catering more to a very targeted audience. I think if those banks survive this, they're they're going to be forced to be more diversified in who they do business with as well.
2: Yeah. I, it, to me, it seems like that this particular bank was just on the fringe, is on the edge of things compared to what most of the banks are. I know that other people are concerned, and there is a valid concern there, but I don't think it's as serious as maybe the general public thinks, maybe? I don't know.
3: I don't think it's as widespread okay. as people may fear. Um it is scary, but it's a liquidity issue. It's gotcha. not a systemic banking issue. Makes sense. And that's and that's why I don't think that this is going to cause a ripple effect across the entire United States banking system. There you go. I, I just don't think that's where this is headed. Um it it it, it is a frightening thing and as I said the, the domino effect for smaller regional banks is very, very certain right now. Mm-hmm. Um people are asking a lot of questions about FDIC insurance and FDIC insurance is is $250,000 per account per bank. And if we're going to be really technical about it, it's $250,000 per registration per bank. So for example, you can have an individual account that's covered for 250. You can have an IRA that's covered for 250 at your bank so it's the type of registration at the individual institutions this is the first time since the 2008 recession that we've gotten this volume of inquiries about FDIC insurance Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. another little known type of insurance in the financial industry is SIPC Securities Investor Protection Corporation that covers the companies that carry your investment accounts.
2: Oh wow. Okay, that I didn't know. I've seen that signature behind things before, but never knew that.
3: That's that's what SIPC is. It covers the investment organizations and those accounts are covered up to half a million dollars. Certain organizations will carry what's called excess SIPC coverage above and beyond the initial 500,000, but that is a a an investment industry mirror of FDIC and the credit unions also have NCUA the National Credit Union Association they uh, their equivalent of FDIC so uh, again a lot of calls about that this is this is uh, the type of thing that causes savers and investors to get more conservative and be more concerned about how much protection they have on those accounts.
2: I love what you said at the beginning of our conversation here about diversification. That stands for everybody, isn't it? That's one of the reasons that you diversify.
3: It absolutely is. It it works for us as investors. It works for banks as lenders. Uh, diversification does help spread out the risk.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 855-ROSE-123. Let's say we take a quick break. We'll be back with more of the Larry Rosenthal Show here in just a moment. Stay tuned.
1: Live with Larry Rosenthal. Phone lines are open for your retirement and financial planning questions at 855-ROSE-123. That's 855-767-3123. More Making Money Sense in a moment.
5: There are still too many countries that give little or no assistance to disabled children. Your gift will help transform not only a disabled child's life, but the lives of their parents and of the surrounding community. Go to thecdfi.org. Make a difference. Go to thecdfi.org. Delivering sound financial advice you can depend on. you found The Larry Rosenthal Show. Call now with your questions, 855 767 3123, or stop by Larry Rosenthal.com. This is The Larry Rosenthal Show.
2: Well, welcome back to The Larry Rosenthal Show, 855 767 3123, to talk to Dina Arnett here in the studio with us. Thanks for watching us on Larry Rosenthal.tv. Larry has the day off spending some time with some family. Uh, Dina?
3: So, this week the US Federal Reserve is meeting to discuss inflation and interest rates again. Boy, I hope they
2: don't do anything.
3: <laughs> well, you know, this is this is on the heels of the European Central Bank meeting last week and they stuck to their policy and they raised interest rates in the Eurozone by a half a percent last week. Mm. Uh, Before the Silicon Valley bank issues of the past couple of weeks, it was widely thought that the U.S. Federal Reserve may also hike rates a half a point because inflation is just stubborn and persistent right now. Mm. The CPI rose 0.4 percent in February core CPI, which strips out food and energy, was up a half a percent, and those were both higher than expected readings. On a year-over-year basis, the CPI is up 6%, down from 6.4, so that's it's trending in the right direction, but um, it, truly, it's not coming down as quickly as the Fed would like. Um, I think at this point what we're going to get is a quarter percent rate hike instead of a half because the Fed, while they understand that there are some liquidity issues in certain banks, they still have to stay on their core mission, which is to bring inflation back down, bring those consumer prices back down away from these these 40-year highs that we've been seeing for the past year and a half. Mm. So I don't think they have the room to stop What they're doing. I think they have to keep moving forward. And in fact, given this latest news, I think we may see the Fed continue to do these small rate hikes for several more meetings.
1: Oh, boy.
2: Interesting. Calling us from Kansas City is uh, Nelson. Nelson, welcome to the program. And you're talking with Dina. What's your question?
6: Uh, I'd like to know about a money market fund given... uh different rate environments, what rate environments are really more conducive to being in money market funds and what rate environments are maybe not the best to be in money market funds.
3: Are you talking just in terms of the rate that they pay or are you concerned about risk within the money market fund itself? Uh,
6: well, I've looked within my, uh, the holdings of my money fund, I'm not overly concerned about what's in it. There's a little bit of corporate in there, and that, that concerns me a little. But I mean the macro rate environment. Do you want to be in money market funds when the Fed's rates are going up and up and up and up and up? Or are you better? When is a good rate? What's a good rate environment to want to be in there rather than uh the FDIC
7: holding an end of making making zero
3: percent. Okay, fair question. Fair question. So, I think in a rising interest rate environment, money market funds become much more attractive. Over the past several years, really since the 2008 recession, you haven't made anything on any banking type of instrument, money market funds included. But since the Fed's been in this interest rate hiking cycle, we're seeing nicer rates across the board. CD rates are going up. U.S. Treasury rates are going up. Money market rates are going up. And that's because what the Fed manipulates when they change interest rates, they're changing those short-term rates, which is what money market funds are going to mirror. So as the Fed continues to raise short-term rates, the money market funds should yield a better rate yet. So when do you wanna be in them? I think it's much more attractive in an environment like this where we expect the Fed to keep raising rates.
6: Just one last question. Uh, in my in my money market fund uh, portfolio, there are uh, there's a there's a lot of uh, repo agreements, but I think the repo agreements are relatively safe. What do you think?
3: Um, I I. Without knowing the specific money market fund, and, and what you're talking about is is it really goes to the charter of that money market fund and how much risk they can take to produce a yield. Money market funds have a very, very strict mandate to maintain a $1 per share price. That We don't want to see the value per share fluctuate. The only thing we want on a money market fund is that interest yield. I, if I were you, I would read into the prospectus on the money market fund that you have and see what percentage they have in those repos. See what percentage they have in mortgage-backed securities, what percentage they have in corporate bonds, and see what that looks like for you Um and I would look at the history of the fund. Hopefully it's been around since the 08 recession and you can see how it performed during that period of time as well. And I think that will give you a good gauge of the risk inherent in the fund. But generally speaking, generally speaking, money market funds are not supposed to have a lot of risk associated with them.
6: Right. I looked at... I looked at- where they were holding their repos, and in my opinion, they were holding them in very, very safe government instruments. I was just wondering, is there one added element of risk being in a repo? Even if it's a, a repo with a government. Uh,
3: There's so much that goes into answering that question, because each government, so if we're talking municipalities, okay, here in the United no, States...
6: No, 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 these are like um, uh, CDs and uh, uh, government bonds and that kind
3: of thing. Okay, are they municipal government bonds? Are they are they United States
6: bonds? I it, it okay. really depends. Okay, I it, hear you. I hear you. In other it, words, just because just because it says in government bonds we have this percent, I need to know what 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 type of government bond you're referring to.
3: Yes, because they're not all created equally. Um, And I use this example with my clients. I I ask them, would you want a state of Virginia municipal bond, a Detroit, Michigan municipal bond, or an L.A. County municipal bond? And they all pay different yields, right? So the the state of Virginia bond may have a 4% yield. The Detroit-Michigan bond may have a 7% yield, and the L.A. County bond may have a similar yield to the Detroit yield. If all I knew was the yield, I'd go for Detroit or L.A., right? But, but we, it's, we it's
6: more risky. it's more risky.
3: It can be, but then you have to dive in and you have to see what the charter of these municipalities says about repayment of debt. So for example, some of these municipalities will say that you have to fund education first and then the very next thing is you have to pay your bondholders. So it it depends on the pecking order, right? So so it's never just a question of it's never just a question of are muni bonds good or are muni bonds bad.
6: I hear that. I am learning now from you. This is a fidelity uh fund a prime fund. Fidelity's prime money market. You have to have at least 100000 in it. And uh, my broker uh, gave me the yield uh, on a particular day. And I, I just assumed that Fidelity is a well-known company. But I hear you now. I need to dig deeper.
3: I would. I absolutely okay, would. You. You're asking the thank right you. questions. Go deeper with them.
2: Thanks, Nelson. Thank you. Appreciate that. See how fancy we get. We went from Missouri all the way to Wisconsin, and now we're talking to Mike. Mike, welcome. You're on with Dina.
6: Good morning. Good morning. Hey, Mike. I'm retiring soon. I'm 62, planning on retiring at 70. In my portfolio of retirement funds, uh, I don't have no uh, annuities. I wonder what what you think of annuities and what, what percentage of my mix should be annuities.
3: I love that question. Thank you so much. So, I uh, annuities, let's, let's make sure that we're all on the same page in terms of annuities. Annuities are insurance contracts that provide guaranteed lifetime income. A lot of people have very, very strong opinions about annuities. You have the people who love them. You have the people who hate them. There's not a whole lot in the, in the middle, right? Um, the people right. who do not like them do not like them because they tend to have higher investment fees in them, right? Um, And I tell my clients, guarantees aren't cheap. So when we're talking about annuities, I just want our listeners to understand what the basis of your question is. Now, to your question, how much should you have in an annuity? I think that answer depends on how a, a, a few things. First of all, you need to know how much... You have to bring in to meet your budget every month. How much does it cost to put food on the table, keep the lights on, and keep gas in the car? Once you know that number, then you look at your other sources of guaranteed income. Social Security is one of them. Do you have a pension from your job?
6: I got a 401 401 and a pension fund. Okay, so you'll have Social Security
3: you'll have Social Security and you'll have a pension as sources of monthly income already so in terms of should you have an annuity and if yes how much I would look at how much of your monthly budget the Social Security and the pension income will cover and whatever differential there is if they don't cover it all perhaps look to an annuity to help bridge that gap I like annuities to for just that purpose, to cover that differential. I know some people who want as much as 50% in annuities. I know some people who have pensions and Social Security sufficient to cover that monthly budget. That says eh, maybe you want an annuity for some guaranteed income. Maybe that helps satisfy your sleep factor, but it's not necessarily a requirement. So I think that annuity question for you, Mike, is going to really depend on how much of your monthly budget will already be covered by other sources of income. Okay, thank you. Yes, sir. All right, Mike, thanks for
2: the call here this morning. 855-767-3123, 855-ROSE123. If you'd like to reach Dina, you can call that number right now. She's answering those questions, and we'll continue here.
3: Absolutely, I will. But you know what? A month from today is tax day. Have you Uh, done your tax return?
2: Oh, I never do. I always file an extension every year. That's just how I am. Oh, okay.
3: (laughs) Well, and that buys you six months. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about extensions because extensions are something that people tend to misunderstand. So if you're in the same boat as Chris and you're going to file an extension, go right ahead, but understand that you are requesting a six-month extension to file the return.
2: Yes, I know. That's not to, Not it. to pay the taxes.
3: <laughs> not to pay the taxes. So if you think that you're going to owe, go ahead, file your extension, and make a payment Estimating how much you think you will owe. An extension does not get you off the hook for the April eighteenth deadline to pay your taxes.
2: That is true. And my accountant tells me that every year. As you can see. And me. that's
3: and that's a good thing for your accountant to remind you of.
2: Yes. It is.
3: Now, if you are in the In the category of people who expects a refund on your taxes this year, one of the big things that you need to think about is making sure you don't have mistakes on your tax return. Because if you have mistakes on your tax return, that's going to delay your refund. And in 2020 alone, Chris, pop quiz, do you know how many people filed a tax return with a math error on it?
2: I don't know, but I know it's a big number.
3: 12 million returns filed in 2020 had a math error on them.
2: Wow. I bet you our high school math teachers are upset now.
3: You know, <laughs> sidebar on that. My very favorite math teacher in all of college, her name was Marilyn Morrison, rest her soul. She. Everyone called her the math monster.
6: Mm.
3: Her favorite saying was, math is beautiful. Oh. She was wonderful. But if you didn't take a math class from Marilyn Morrison and you had (laughs) a math mistake on your tax return, it could cause your refund to be delayed. Mm -hmm. It could cause you to pay more in taxes than you owe, and fees. It could cause you penalties Mm -hmm. and interest. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very important to make sure that you do good math on your return. Now, They give you a mechanism to fix a mistake after you file, but it's way easier to get it right the first time around. If you have to amend your tax return, it can can cause you fees. Yeah,
2: and your accountant's probably gonna charge you a little bit, so
3: yeah. Yeah, it's it's just not necessary. Mm -hmm. So, six common mistakes that trip up taxpayers. First of all, make sure that you have all the documents that you need. I cannot tell you how many times I have people call and say, I got this letter from the IRS and they said when I filed my tax return two years ago, I didn't account for this income. And a lot of times it's a 1099 from a brokerage account, a joint account, something that was issuing dividends and capital gains, and they didn't use the form or they didn't give that form to their CPA, they didn't double check to make sure they had all the documents they needed. That's probably the most common mistake that I see.
2: You can also actually hurt yourself if you don't have something like uh, the the interest forms that come from your homes and things of that nature where you can actually save on taxes.
3: That's right. The the documents that you need, the typical list, you need all of your W-2s from your employers and any 1099 forms from freelance income, if you do contracting work, um, you get a 1099 and you have to account for that income and you have to pay both halves of your, your self-employment taxes, you, ha- you, you need your 1099s. And if you have investments, health savings accounts, retirement income, you need the statements from those as well there's a really nice you know the irs is so benevolent they have a very nice list of tax documents and i'm happy to provide that list the irs makes it available and you can look through that list of documents and see which may apply to you check that list before you send in your return one thing we hear more and more Clients will say, "Hey, I expect a great big refund, um, but hey, what about my my crypto? Oh boy! What, or 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 I inherited some property and sold it. There there are lots of special tax." situations that if you don't account for them you can get a really really unhappy surprise a couple of years down the road because it usually takes the irs about two years to figure out you've made the mistake
2: yeah in crypto for the longest time they were always having trouble figuring out how to tax that or if it was going to be taxed but they've kind of got that sort of down now and they are going to tax you
3: they are absolutely going to tax you um so Again, if you want the list, we're happy to send that out. But first things first, make sure you have all the right documents to file.
7: Mm
6: -hmm.
3: And then the next thing, double-check your credits and deductions. If you claim tax credits or deductions on your return, please make sure your math adds up on these. Because, again, a math mistake means you're going to get a nasty gram from the IRS. This is where tax prep software like, TurboTax, Tax Tax Act, you know, there's all these different Mm -hmm, ones mm -hmm. online. The IRS even has one. These programs can walk you through your eligible deductions and credits. It helps minimize the risk of an error. But don't forget, if you're typing all this in by hand, check and double check before you hit submit on that return. The, the data old, entry's got to be correct.
2: Yeah, it's the old saying, garbage in, garbage out. You can have a wonderful program, and if you put the wrong stuff in it, you're definitely going to get the wrong answers. So
3: That's right. That's right. And once you've got all the data input, look over the whole return. You just can't be too careful when checking numbers on that tax return. You're going to want to pay close attention to your adjusted gross income. They call that AGI charitable contributions, medical expenses if you itemize, and any tax withholding that you have already done or estimated tax payments. So I ha- I know a lot of people will make estimated quarterly payments if they're receiving Social Security, for example, and not having taxes withheld. And whether you've done any of this yourself or you've had a CPA or an enrolled agent do your taxes, make sure you look over the full return. Don't just blindly sign it,
7: mm-hmm.
3: okay, because they're humans too. They can make input errors. And ultimately, people think if, if oh, I had I had a CPA do my tax return, and if there's a mistake, they're on the hook for the mistake. Nope, you're the one who signs the return. Yeah. You're on the hook for the mistake.
2: Uh, their name is there, but it just doesn't really mean that much in the end.
3: It means they prepared your return.
2: That's it. Yeah, that's all.
3: And the one other thing in terms of, of just data input, make sure your Social Security numbers are correct.
7: hmm
3: Because if if they're not correct, that can kick the whole thing out as well. And if you're having a direct deposit for your uh, tax refund, make sure the account number and routing number are accurate. You know, I, I've seen situations where someone's using one of the online prep uh, services they go through, they put in all their data. They're ready to submit. They hit submit, and perhaps the bank account that they deposited to last year is closed. Mm-hmm. That's going to delay your refund as well.
2: Yeah, and make it a long time probably actually because the wheels of the IRS don't turn all that fast when it comes. Well, to they
3: that. don't. They don't. And and back to my original point on this. It just. It makes all the sense in the world to check and recheck before you hit submit because any type of mistake like this can cause you more taxes, it can cause you more fees, it can delay your refund, and nobody likes any of that.
2: (laughs) Is understatement of the day here from Dina Arnett here.
3: That's an obvious.
2: (laughs) Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more of the Larry Rosenthal Show and Dina Arnett here in studio with us in just a second. Stay tuned to the Larry Rosenthal
1: Show. You are listening to Making Money Sense Live with Larry Rosenthal. Phone lines are open for your retirement and financial planning questions at 855-ROSE-123. That's 855-767-3123. More making money sense in a moment.
2: And here's another Money Minute with Larry Rosenthal.
0: We've all heard the more risk you get, the more opportunity there is for growth in returns in your investments. However, can you have too much risk in your investments so that you get diminishing returns? You can only water ski behind one boat at a time. Make sure your risk-adjusted return is aligned with your investment objectives.
2: Bet you could sing the, the lyrics to that song. Uh,
3: <laughs> Not today. I got a scratchy throat today.
2: <laughs> you're, we're back with the Larry Rosenthal Show here, and uh, my name is Christopher Kate Glad that you're along here today. Dina Arnett is in studio doing some uh, very, very good things with us with regards to the program today. Again, if you'd like to dial in, 855-767-3123, 855-ROSE-123. Larry has the weekend off. He's spending some time with family. Yes.
3: So before the break, we were talking about filing an accurate tax return, and I'm giving you six things to do before you hit submit. First of all, make sure you've got all of your documents. The IRS has a handy little list for you if you need it. Uh, the second thing is double check your credits and deductions. Make sure if if you're doing the data entry yourself, check and recheck them, those numbers as you enter them in. Look over the whole return before you send it. Confirm your filing status, because it matters. If you're single, uh, it, that's that filing status is for anyone who is not legally married. Married filing jointly is for when you and your spouse file that joint tax return. If you and your spouse want to file individual returns, your filing status will be married filing separately. And while there are some circumstances where you want to do that, make sure you understand the implications. Married filing separately is not just like two single people filing a return. mm mm-hmm. There's a head of household status for when you're unmarried and paying more than half the cost of maintaining your home. You may have a qualifying person living in that home for at least half of half the year. You wanna make sure you understand the rules for filing head of household. And then there's also the qualifying widow or widower status with a dependent child. This is for when your spouse passed away during the previous two years, but again, other rules apply to this and it can get complicated Mm. if your filing status is wrong it could cost money i've talked about already can cost you money in taxes can cost you money in fees can delay your refund make sure you understand which tax status is right for you for most people it's a pretty easy thing, but if you've had a big life change in 2022 such as a marriage, a divorce, death of a spouse, double check that your filing status is correct before signing and sending in that tax return.
2: You know, I had a friend, I had a friend who got a divorce, unfortunately, and they had children and when the divorce was finalized, they didn't agree on who was supposed to, who was going to take care of the children on the tax return. That kind of needs to be done in advance because they both claimed him. And, then
3: and that ties things up for a very long time. <laughs> it a a very long time.
2: It certainly does. Joseph is on the phone with us from Glenn Burney. Joseph, welcome. What's your question for Dina?
8: Yes, Dina. Um, unfortunately, um, our mo- my mother-in-law is not doing very well and, um, we're more than likely we're 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 going to inherit her home, but we don't know what kind of taxes involved in that situation. If we, if we inherit a home, if we got taxes to pay in that, or what what, what we're subject to.
3: Great question. First of all, my condolences. I'm so sorry to hear that your mother-in-law is not well. That's that's yes. that's a tough thing to endure. Um, in Thanks terms of one. inheriting her home. There may be a very, very nice tax break for you and your wife on that. The the IRS has a, a, a little thing in the code called the stepped-up cost basis. And what that means is essentially when you inherit an asset from someone, it is titled in your mother-in-law's name. It's not titled in anyone else's name when she passes I assume your wife is the inheritor. If your wife inherits that property outright and then sells it, she inherits it at whatever the value was the day of her mother's passing. And what that means is when she sells it, let's suppose the house is worth $300,000 the day your mother-in-law passes, and your wife sells it for $300,000. There's no capital gains tax on that the capital gains tax would come into play for any profit above that $300,000 mark. So, um, while it is never a fun thing, and and it certainly feels opportunistic to think about doing this at a time like this, you may look at getting an appraisal on the property so that you have something close to a current value on the home when and if your mother-in-law passes that certainly makes that tax conversation a little bit easier it makes the math a little less complicated
8: okay 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 now here here's the uh, say we were just to keep the home then what would be the situation would there be any taxes involved in that
3: you would have to pay the property taxes that are due each year but that should be it
8: oh so there wouldn't be like the government would come and say okay inherited this home it's worth this now you got to pay us 20 percent of that no um
3: what state do you live in you live in maryland
8: yes but she lives in ohio
3: okay that may complicate things a little bit but generally speaking from a tax perspective unless unless you're inheriting an estate of Oh my goodness forgive me I don't remember the exact amount but it is in the the tens of millions of dollars okay Um, once we breach that federal estate tax limit that exclusion then you might have uh, some tax liability on inheriting a home most people don't fall into that category
8: yeah we won't worry about that that's
3: I, I think your your biggest tax will likely be the property taxes if you keep it.
8: Okay, okay, well, that's good to know. would you say that? What'd you say again? That thing was called that it falls under.
3: It's called the stepped up cost
8: basis. Okay, all right. Well, thank you very much. That kind of my mind with that, you know because I was worried about us getting hit with some big tax bill like twenty grand or fifteen grand or something like that.
3: Now, the one thing the one thing I would suggest that you and your wife do, I would suggest consulting with an estate attorney. Since the property is in a different state than the one where you live, you don't know what you don't know. So get some legal advice on this, too.
8: OK, thank you very much for that. I really appreciate it. Take thank care you for the call.
2: Going to go over to Mar- Landover, Maryland and speak to Maria. Maria, you're on with Dina. What's your question?
8: Good morning
6: Um,
7: i have a situation um i started my full 1k late in life um so i am you know close less than 10 years out from retirement but um my my son got arrested so i had to go into it and take out quite a bit for his bail and his legal fees my question is I would I have at least fifty dollars a month that I could put aside for my grandson just to you know, for his education. What's the best thing? I mean, I know fifty dollars a month isn't a lot, but that is what I could do consistently. So I don't know what you know, what avenues should I do. He he lives in another state and he's just four and I would like to start, you know, helping out putting something aside for him. Yes, ma'am. Yes,
3: ma'am. So are you going to restrict his use of the money to education?
7: Um, I guess I would say yes, but you know, I, I would like to say yes because I want it for education, college, or you know, I I would like him. I'm hoping that's what he'll want to do. But like I say, he's just four, so sure. I want to put something aside for him.
3: You can go a couple of different ways with this if you want to make it purely for education. There are two education savings accounts that are widely available. One is called a Coverdale Education Savings Account. That's got... That has got, I believe, a $2,000 per year contribution limit. Um, If you're going to do $50 a month, you're well within the contribution limits on that. You can set that up at your bank. You can set that up with any investment professional. Um, What I would recommend that you do is check to see what the fees would be wherever you set it up. And then the second thing that you could look into is what's called a 529 education savings plan. The 529 plan will give you, you, you're in Maryland? Yeah. Okay. So the $600 a year that you would put into the 529 plan, you can get a state income tax deduction for those contributions when you make them. So that may be a little thing to help uh, ease your tax burden while helping your grandson out. But both of these plans will give him tax-free money if it, if it is used for education. If it's okay. not used for education, he would owe income taxes on any growth plus a 10% penalty on any growth. So it's not completely restricted but it is penalized fairly significantly if it's not used for education. But both of those plans may be good alternatives for you to set something up for him. And okay, over are there time any fees don't
7: 529.
3: I'm sorry, say that again?
7: Are there any fees with the 529?
3: Uh there can be. Um I believe the 529 plan in Maryland is through a company called T Rowe Price. Um, you can contact them and ask what their fees are. I think they would be minimal. And since he's so young, I would suggest investing those dollars, not just in money markets or CDs, but invest in something that has a long-term higher expectation for return. That way your $50 a month has more potential to grow for him over his time between now and when he would use the money.
7: Okay, I'll look into both of them. I, I thank you, like I say, I don't have much to put aside, but I, you know, I just wanted him to get get started, to you know, to help out.
3: If invested well, that can add up. That's six hundred dollars a year. He's only four. That can pile yeah. up very well for him over his over his next fourteen years or so.
2: Well, I wish somebody okay. would have started one for me when I was really young. But, yeah. <laughs>
7: All Thank right, you Maria. both so much. Have a safe weekend. All
2: right, we're going to go over to, Port, to Poolsville, Maryland, and talk to Voris or Voris. Voorhees, I would assume, yes?
7: Yes, that is correct. Okay,
2: welcome. What's your question for Dana? Uh,
7: uh, quick question, and again, uh, it's nice talking to you, Ms. Arnett. What I'm calling about is on Medicare Part D, to my understanding, it's the fee that you pay is based off of your, I guess, if you're retired, and you're about to turn 65, the fee that you pay for Medicare is determined off of your income tax return? Yes, if, ma'am. If you filed, Mary filed, and you filed jointly, is it based off just 50% of it or the entire thing? Because let's say your, the other spouse hasn't retired yet, nor is that spouse near 65. So it how it they determined to actual cost? It's
3: going to be based off of your income. okay Um, Okay. it is it is there's a a scale the higher your income goes the the more you're gonna have to pay for it and the other piece of it is they're looking at your income from two years ago so I have clients who will file what is called an Irma appeal because you don't make the same income that you made two years ago if you were working and now you're retired right
7: so correct
3: so Um, You're going to want to see how significantly that may impact your Medicare premiums. Um, Actually, you know what? Give me a second, Varese. I'm going to okay. pull this up live while we're on the air. Let me see if I can do this efficiently.
2: Dina has skills. What can I tell you? She's got skills. 855 Rose one two three. We're about to just about coming to the close of our program here, but we do have some folks on hold, so hang in there and no Dina, problem. Dina will answer those questions for you here in just a minute.
3: Okay. And I told you something incorrect, Maurice. If you file a joint tax return, the the brackets are different. They are going to look at the total household income, but the brackets are adjusted for that joint tax return. So for this year, if you're, if they're looking at your yearly income for 2021, so if your household income was $194,000 or less, you're going to pay the lowest Medicare Part B premium of $164,90. But Mm -hmm. let's say that in 2021, your joint income, your, your joint adjusted gross income on your tax return was more than that 194000 and today it's less. You can file this, what's called an IRMA appeal, Income Related Medicare Adjustment Amount, IRMAA, and you can make your case to the IRS, hey, you're looking at income from two years ago, I'm retired now and I don't make that much money.
7: Okay, okay, got it. Okay, uh, great. Uh, Varice okay, thank you. you Thanks, for it. Thanks
2: for the call.
3: Thanks for the call, Varice. Good to hear from you.
2: Yep. Well, we're winding down the uh, Larry Rosenthal show on the radio. We'll stick around just for a few minutes here on YouTube for those who are on hold and need to talk to Dina. But we uh, really appreciate you being here.
3: It's nice to be here. It's, it's good, good to see good. you.
2: Good. yeah, And the taxes will definitely come, so I really
3: appreciate the One month from today.
2: Oh, we're almost there. We're almost there. Again, remember the phone number, 855-767-3123. That phone number rings in the office all week long, and there are no fees for questions. Just call in and ask whatever you may be on your mind or any questions that you have about your portfolio. For Dina and for Bob, we'll see you later next time on another edition of the Larry Rosenthal Show.